0: This episode contains references to child sexual abuse and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Fort Lauderdale, Florida, February 1980. It's an old story. Across a crowded bar, their eyes meet. A shy smile. The dance begins. John Homan is 33, the owner of a boat-building business, recently divorced. Robbie Hannon is 35, an executive assistant at an accounting firm, a widow. They connect, unusual for John, a shy, insecure man, lanky and balding, tall, but with the stooped shoulders of one who spends most of his time hunched over a workbench. Robbie and John start dating, and the next month, Robbie moves in, John is in love. John Greenleaf whittier the III is the scion of a relatively prominent family that slowly collapsed after their beloved mother died of complications from alcoholism. When John meets Robbie, he's not only just finalized an acrimonious divorce, he's long been estranged from his siblings due to ongoing feuds over the family estate. He's almost completely alone, with a failing business and few remaining ties to the past. Robbie's backstory is far more tragic, but ultimately, she's found herself in the same place as John. Several years ago, her two young children were killed by a drunk driver while on their way to church. Robbie was supposed to have driven them herself, but something came up, so she'd sent them off with a friend. The resulting grief and guilt compounded by her husband's sudden death from a heart attack shortly after the crash, sends Robbie reeling. She's hospitalized several times due to nervous breakdowns and suicide attempts. Robbie also has a lucrative estate yet to settle. Her husband had been a prominent surgeon and left her a fortune when he died, but she'd fled Texas for Florida before she could claim it. Someday, when she's ready... She'll go back to Texas and claim her inheritance. But even now, years later, the memories are still raw. The guilt still stings. She'll always be healing, but it's time to let go and create a new life for herself. Together, John and Robbie seek their new beginning. Both are ready for a quieter life. In the early 80s, Fort Lauderdale is cementing its reputation as a party town for rowdy college students. In October 1980, they pack up and move to Marlow, New Hampshire, a small Yankee enclave about 1,500 miles north of Fort Lauderdale, but culturally in a different galaxy. Robbie gets a job as a customer service clerk at Central Screw Company, and John finds work as a tool and die maker. In May of 1981, Robbie and John get married. The move north, however, doesn't relieve the painful, often immobilizing headaches from which Robbie has begun to suffer. After visiting several doctors, she's finally diagnosed with some obscure blood disorder. Not cancer, but something like it. John is never quite sure. Regardless, the diagnosis doesn't much help, Robbie's condition being so rare. None of her doctors know what to do about it. They tell her she may have to get experimental treatments at a special medical center in Dallas. Meanwhile, the headaches are getting worse. The disease is progressing. If she doesn't get real help soon, Robbie will die. Facing the prospect of imminent death roils Robbie's mind anew. After her diagnosis, more painful memories begin to surface particularly about her upbringing in Tyler, Texas. Robbie reveals to John that she and her twin sister Terry were raised in opulent surroundings by grandparents as wealthy and powerful as they were cruel. Robbie's grandfather would often tie her to a fireplace mantle and abuse her. Soon it all becomes too much for Robbie to bear, and she begins to be overtaken by spells of disturbing behavior. Late at night, she'll fall into a daze or some kind of trance and start acting like a five-year-old, speaking in the voice of a little girl. Or she'll start babbling nonsense, then suddenly burst into tears and sob uncontrollably for hours. And then, just as suddenly, it ends where it began, Robbie staring off into space, motionless, her mind somewhere far, far away. John tries his best to comfort his wife, But the late nights wear him down. By early fall of 1981, their young marriage is already fraying. When John drops Robbie off at the airport to catch her flight to Dallas, they're both not sure if she'll ever come back, even if she does recover. As Robbie disappears into the terminal, John hates to admit it, but he's relieved. Robbie is also relieved. Being Robbie Holman has become a real drag. As soon as her flight lands in Fort Lauderdale, Robbie bleaches her hair and ceases to exist. Blondes have more fun. Several weeks later, Terry Martin is house hunting. This is perfect. This is exactly what I need for my sister. The owner of the house is floored. They'd barely begun the tour and already Terry's acting like she owns the place, pointing out where she plans to put her furniture and which walls she wants to knock down to create a special wing for her ailing twin sister, Robbie. The owner had met the vivacious blonde widow when she'd been one of his weekly tenants at a small residential motel he ran in Pompano Beach before she'd moved to a luxury condo closer to the water. Somehow she'd found out he was thinking of selling his house in Lighthouse Point a swanky community just north of Pompano, and persuaded him to show it to her. He did so gladly. He knew that her husband had been a successful business executive who'd left her a comfortable income besides the family money she'd inherited. She had a job, too. Not that Terry really had to work, but she liked to stay busy. She filled her days working as a secretary in Fort Lauderdale. Though the owner wasn't even sure he wanted to sell the old place... If he did, he couldn't have hoped for a more qualified buyer, and she'd practically fallen out of the sky. Before the tour is over, Terry makes an offer. $200,000. Cash. How soon can you move? The owner tells her he'll have to talk to his wife first. Terry insists on calling him in a day or two to start ironing out details. The owner never hears from Terry Martin again. Her failure to follow up is understandable. Early the next week, Terry calls her boss to tell him her twin sister has died. She's on her way to New Hampshire, and she doesn't know when or if she'll ever come back. Well, hello again, and welcome back to The Nicest Lady You Know. I'm still Nathan Lee, and this is my creation. Thanks for joining me again for episode two, in which we learn a little more about what's going on with daughter Carol as Marie's finances spiral out of control and her family begins to pull at the threads of her lies. I'll have more to say at the end of the episode, so be sure to tune in after. But for now, let's just dive right back into the story. At the end of the previous episode, Marie's blown through Frank's life insurance and is now broke. After spending the summer of 78 in Florida with Mike and his family, Marie and Carol return to Aniston and move in with Frank's mother Carrie until Marie can get on her feet again. Soon enough, though, Mike is forced to pay a return visit to his mother. Aniston, June 1979. Mike ran to the toilet to vomit. The nausea overtook him suddenly, and when he was finally able to lift his head again, his stomach raw and empty, he wondered if it was something he ate. His mother, who'd prepared their lunch, seemed okay. Maybe a bout of the flu? Mike's guts felt like they were melting. He wanted badly to lie down, but he and Marie still had to get to Aniston National Bank before it closed that day. Marie's money problems had become Mike's money problems. Late last year, he turned his old Chevy Nova over to his mother. She was sick of the tiny, cheap Chevette to which he'd been relegated, and Mike was in the market for a new car, so he agreed to give her the Nova as long as she took over the payments. Mike always wanted to help his mother out when he could. Honor thy mother and father is the fifth commandment, after all. But lately... Marie was sorely testing Mike's filial generosity. On her most recent visit to Pompano Beach, Marie'd stolen his new MasterCard from a locked-desk drawer and racked up $600 in charges. He'd paid it off, difficult enough on a striving young minister's salary. And Marie's creditors from all over Anniston were calling Mike now, expecting the son to pick up from where the father had left off. So he'd been crystal clear with his mother about the deal with the Nova. When GMAC called to inform him that his auto loan was in arrears, he hightailed it to Anniston to confront Marie. She laughed and told Mike not to worry. She was good for it. Or rather, her old boss, Harold Dillard, would be. Dillard had offered to give Marie the money for the car payments. Mike chose not to question why a man for whom Marie'd worked many years ago would be willing to bail her out now. He was going to take care of the problem and get back to his wife and infant son as soon as possible. Mike demanded they drive down to Dillard's office now. When they arrive, Mike doesn't recognize the building. Marie informs him that Dillard has moved offices and insists Mike stay in the car while she collects her check but she returns just a few minutes later, empty-handed. Harold isn't in at the moment, it being Saturday and all, and no one in the office knows where he is. Besides, it isn't right bothering such a busy man on his weekend. They'd have to come back later. But if Mike could wait just a little while longer for the money from the stock sale to come in, they could easily pay off the Nova and buy them all new cars, with plenty left over besides. For months, Marie'd been telling her children that, besides his insurance policy, Frank had left her stock in a company called Allicite, an ironworks based in New York State, which Frank had acquired somehow through his work at Standard Foundry. Marie was vague on the details, but she was sure that the stock was worth at least $50,000. She'd even showed them a large engraved stock certificate, Allisite Inc., a division of the Warnamock Iron Company. But for some reason or another, again, Marie was vague on the details. Aniston National Bank had been holding out and sending Marie her check from the sale. Some paperwork issue. Or maybe it was taxes. It was just a matter of time. Mike was worn out. He'd been so keyed up he hadn't eaten anything that morning, and it was nearly one o'clock already. They'd stop home for a quick lunch, but after that, they were going straight to Anniston National to finally settle up on that stock sale. Then Mike got sick, and he spent the rest of that day and night in a fitful sleep with a bucket by the bed. The next morning, Marie announced that their worries were over. She'd gotten the money. Had Harold Dillard come through? Had she gone to Anniston National herself and demanded the proceeds from the stock sale? Of course not. Marie had sold Carol's new Buick cutlass. But that's Carol's car. Mike was incredulous. Carol loved that car. Marie waved away Mike's concern. She doesn't need it. Unfortunately, Marie was right. His sister was too ill now to drive. For months, Marie had been dragging her daughter to doctor after doctor, none of whom could give them a definitive diagnosis. One of Carol's more mysterious symptoms was the worsening numbness in her extremities, which had started in her feet and was now creeping up her lower legs, making it impossible for her to control a vehicle. Mike didn't want to be around when Marie informed Carol her car was gone, but he certainly wasn't going to leave money in Marie's hands. Mike drove down to Anniston National with his mother, got a cashier's check based on the proceeds from the sale of the Buick, and mailed the check to GMAC himself. Then he drove back to his wife and child in Florida, back to the hard-won normalcy of his adult life, though for several days after, he still felt a little woozy. As the summer of 79 begins and Carol's condition steadily worsens, Marie's fired from Dresser Industries for taking too much time off. All of that money, Frank's life insurance, the payouts from the claims on all those mysterious fires, the proceeds from the sale of the house on McClellan, the rolls of cash she earned doing all of that extra typing. All of it's gone, sucked into the relentless vortex of Marie's compulsion to keep buying more and more shit. Now she doesn't even have a salary to cover basic living expenses. But reality won't stop Marie. Throughout the summer of 79, she continues to spend extravagantly, digging herself ever further into a hole out of which she cannot climb. Marie never meant for her situation to become so dire. A certain windfall she'd expected earlier that summer hadn't yet appeared. But she'd straighten everything out soon. It was just a matter of time. By July of that summer, Marie's bounced 11 checks on her account at First National Bank of Jacksonville, which carries a balance of $1.77. When you bounce a check, meaning the bank determines that you don't have enough money in your account to cover the amount, you're still liable for it. Therefore, any monies you subsequently deposit into that checking account will first be applied to what's outstanding, not to mention the bank's exorbitant fee for bouncing that check in the first place. Marie can't use that account anymore. It's a money pit. So she opens a new account, fresh and unsullied, at another institution, Anniston National Bank, which she quickly overdraws by hundreds of dollars. So she opens a third account at First National Bank of Anniston, with an $800 check written on the already overdrawn Anista National Bank account. That check soon bounces as well, and First National immediately closes the account. By August, she's bounced another 13 checks on her Anista National account, and that account is also closed. But that's all these banks do, close the accounts and write off the losses. They let Marie off easy. They don't even try to collect their return check fees. Anniston, Alabama, isn't a small town, but it's not really a large one either. Its population then and now hovering at about 23,000. Marie's a well-known local girl, a hard-working professional, a PTA mom, Frank Hilly's widow. She'd grown up with most of the bank tellers. They trust her. Sure, she's been having a few money troubles lately, but give her a break. She's been through a lot. And whenever she comes in, she's such a sweetheart, always asks about the kids, even remembers their names. Good old Marie Fraser Hilly. When Marie's checks come back stamped non-sufficient funds or closed account, they assume Marie must have gotten confused or distracted. She'd fix the problem as soon as she could. They knew Marie was good for it. So the very next day, after her account at Aniston National Bank is closed, thus far having suffered no significant consequences for her carelessness, Marie marches down to Commercial National Bank and goes for broke, in a manner of speaking. At Commercial National, Marie opens two new accounts, one with a $4,500 check and the other with a $10,500 check, both written on an already closed account at a bank in Pompano Beach. Marie tells Commercial National that these funds are from the sale of her house in Florida, which never existed. A total of $15,000 in 1979, roughly equal to the average American's yearly salary, written on nothing but a fantasy. Marie is desperate. It's all falling apart. Time is running out. Birmingham, Alabama, September 1979. Carol was not to tell anyone, especially not her doctors, about the shot her mother had just given her. Marie said she'd gotten the medication from their old neighbor, Doris Ford. Doris had swiped it from the hospital where she worked, and if anyone found out, Doris could get in big trouble. Right before she injected the milky white fluid into Carol's hip, Marie told her daughter that she'd met a woman at the hospital whose own little girl was sick, just like Carol, and that this medication made her able to walk again. It had just been this past spring when Carol had first gotten sick. It was early September now. She'd lost the entire summer. She couldn't even drive the new car her mother had bought her. And what about her future? She graduated Aniston High over a year ago, She should be working at her first real job or at least taking a few classes at Gadsden Junior College. She should be dating someone, doing something with her life. Carol still wasn't sure whether she wanted to be a nurse or a cop or whether she wanted to date Kenny or Cynthia. In the months since that Sunday morning in late April, when she'd suddenly had to run out of weekly Bible study to throw up, illness had consumed her life. At first, she thought it was just a hangover. She and Kenny had gone to the Aniston High Junior Senior Prom the evening before, and then an after-party, where she'd drank a few Tom Collinses, smoked a little weed. No big deal. Nothing wrong with having a good time. That's what prom was for. Four months later, Carol's hands and feet were numb and virtually useless, She could barely walk on her own anymore, and the nausea she'd first felt that Sunday in Bible study became near constant. All summer, her mother had dragged her to doctor after doctor, who'd admit her to some hospital for a week or so, where they'd run all the same tests and come up with the same diagnosis. We have no idea what's wrong with you. Finally, Marie admitted Carol to the psychiatric ward at Carraway Methodist, which Carol didn't understand. She was sick, not crazy, even though sometimes she felt crazy from being sick so much. She'd even tried to kill herself, though she'd later joke that she hadn't tried that hard. One night, the nausea had gotten so bad, along with the frustration and the hopelessness, that she'd swallowed five Tylenol at once, figuring that if the dose didn't kill her, it might make her feel better. She'd written a note to Dad, too, to tell him how much she missed him and wanted to be with him. Her mother, of course, had found the note and blown it all out of proportion, like she always did. The doctor said her illness might be psychosomatic. That was her mother all over. Everything was always Carol's fault. Maybe it was. Maybe she was crazy and didn't even know it, Maybe she took after her mother more than she realized. The thought frightened Carol. One day, during a break from school, Carol'd been bored, really bored, and started snooping around the house, looking for anything at all that might catch her interest. She'd been so bored, in fact, that she found herself opening the drawers in the dining room china cabinet simply because she'd never looked in there before. Among the nicer tablecloths and silverware Marie set out for special occasions, Carol found a letter addressed to her mother and began to read it. The letter was from an aunt of Marie's whom Carol'd never heard of, and it revealed that Marie'd been born with an identical twin sister named Mandy. Huey Fraser, Marie's father, had also been a twin, a situation which he blamed, so this mysterious aunt claimed, for his lifelong unhappiness. Not wanting Mandy and Marie to suffer the way he had, he'd given Mandy up to relatives in Texas. Not even Lucille knew about this, according to the letter. The twin's birth had been extremely difficult, and she'd lain unconscious for days afterward. And when she woke up, she was told she had given birth to just one girl, Marie. Carol didn't know what to make of this, The story made no sense. She simply couldn't believe that Grandma Lucille hadn't known she was carrying twins, or that sweet old Grandpa Huey, who'd always spoken well of his twin brother, had it in him to be so deceitful. And the handwriting looked suspiciously like her mother's. But before Carol could dwell on it, she put the letter back in the drawer exactly where she found it. She felt like she'd unwittingly descended into a dark and private cavern in the recesses of her mother's mind, and some vital instinct shot her back up to the surface, returned Carol to where there was light and air. Her mother loved her, of that Carol was sure. Sometimes she thought her mother loved her too fiercely, that Marie wanted so much to give her daughter all the things she'd never had, that she didn't know how to give Carol the space to figure out what Carol wanted. But now that Carol was sick and Frank was gone, her mother seemed to be the only one who truly cared. Mike was rarely around, and when he was, all he did was complain about money. Neither Aunt Frida nor Cousin Lisa had even bothered to contact her the entire time she'd been at Carraway. And her friends were too busy having all the fun that Carol was supposed to be having, too. As much as Carol resented her mother, Marie dedicated all of her energy to getting Carol well again, and she'd let her mother put her in any hospital Marie wanted and inject her with any drug Marie could get as long as it made the pain go away. And the injections had helped, a little bit. Marie'd given Carol two shots since she'd been at Carraway, and her nausea had begun to fade, even though her legs and hands were still as useless as ever. Carol was impatient for this special new drug to start working. She settled deeper into her hospital bed and closed her eyes. Maybe by morning, she'd be able to walk again. Just like that little girl. But as Carol was about to drift off, the night nurse barged into her room. Carol had a telephone call. It was her friend from Bible study, Eve Cole. The nearest phone was in the ward lobby, a long hallway away from Carol's room. She struggled out of bed, got her feet under her, and inched her way toward the phone, leaning against the wall to support herself. No one would help her. No one could help her. Hospital staff was under strict orders to let Carol walk on her own. Maybe then the girl would realize that her illness was all in her mind. She was worried that by the time she got to the phone, Eve might have already hung up, and she wanted eve to be proud when carol told her she'd made it all the way to the phone by herself eve cole had been born without arms and recently landed a job as a secretary at the aniston army depot by learning to type with her feet if anybody could help carol feel like she had a chance at living a normal life again it was eve <laughs> After suffering months of crippling gastritis, in August of 1979, Carrie Hilly is diagnosed with liver cancer, and she's in and out of the hospital almost as often as her granddaughter. But Marie, consumed by Carol's needs, is unable to be of much assistance to her mother in law. Carrie is fine with this. Living with Marie and Carol has been more exhausting even than her cancer treatments. Mother and daughter have always had a combative relationship, but as illness, and Marie, begin to seize control of Carol's life and Carol's frustration and resentment boil over, the two are now at war, practically unable to speak to each other without shouting, filling Carrie's small white house on Moore Avenue with tension. And Marie's mysterious harasser seems not to have entirely abandoned their obsession. Carrie's window screens are slashed several times. Marie spots suspicious vehicles passing slowly by the house at night. And, albeit not nearly so frequently as before, the calls and notes continue. Carrie herself even picks up one of the calls. The caller, sounding like a young woman on the verge of tears, informs Carrie that she's going to kill her daughter, Frida. Carrie's terrified and immediately tells Frida though her youngest child seems unimpressed by the threat. Carol, despite her increasing dependence on her mother, is determined to move out of her grandmother's house and strike out on her own. Over Marie's strenuous objections, Carol moves into her own apartment on Christine Avenue. Shortly after moving in, she suffers an incapacitating bout of nausea. Marie rushes to her daughter's bedside and begins spending most of her nights at Carol's new place, Soon, Marie moves in with Carol permanently, crushing her daughter's nascent bid for independence. Carrie is relieved when they're both finally gone. She loves her granddaughter, and she's worried about her, but now that she's dealing with her own ill health, she welcomes the renewed peace and quiet. In the last several months, Carrie'd often found herself unable to sleep, Throughout the night, she'd pore through old photo albums, lingering on photos of Marie. Carrie'd once thought Marie's large, liquid, gray-green eyes were her most attractive feature. Now they frightened her. In the photos, Marie's eyes looked... hungry. Obsessed. But with what? Carrie was a country-born woman... Hard-working and God-fearing, not given by nature nor upbringing to idle fancies. Marie needed help, but was she really capable of hurting her own family? Carrie's cancer progressed rapidly over the summer. Her mortality began to stare her down, and her suspicions about Frank's death grew. She couldn't accept that her son's rapid deterioration and death had been caused by something so common and curable as viral hepatitis. Surely Dr. Jones had overlooked some vital detail. Those shots, which Marie'd given Frank right before he went into the hospital, they nagged at Carrie. One evening, when grandson Mike was visiting, they talked, of course, of all the problems Marie'd been having lately. That was old news. But as their conversation continued... Carrie noticed something simmering in the air between them, an unspoken acknowledgement which neither of them was willing to let surface. The shots. Carrie couldn't help thinking about those shots. Carrie broached the subject carefully. Mike, do you remember when your daddy died? Mike hadn't known about the shots and seemed taken aback when his grandmother told him. Carrie immediately regretted mentioning it. She couldn't accuse a woman to her child, her only son, who'd done nothing but try to help his mother. So she said, it just never seemed right. And Carrie and her grandson left it at that. Eve Cole's phone call with Carol is the first in a series of communications that would ultimately save the young woman's life. Despite her mother's insistence upon secrecy, Carol immediately tells Eve about the shot Marie'd just given her. Perhaps Carol assumed that there was no harm in telling Eve, since Eve had witnessed the first shot Marie'd given Carol about a month prior, when Eve was visiting Carol at home between hospital stays. At the time... Marie said it was an anti-nausea medication given to her by Carol's doctor. Eve hadn't thought much of it, though she'd had to turn away as Marie moved toward her daughter with the syringe. Whatever it was, the shot hadn't seemed to do Carol much good anyway. By the time Eve left, Carol was back in bed, more nauseated than before. But Carol is in the hospital now, surrounded by skilled medical professionals— Marie needn't be injecting her daughter with any medication, much less some mystery drug Carol's doctor hadn't prescribed and didn't know about. Eve is concerned enough to mention the shot to Frida Hilly, who works with Eve at the Aniston Army Depot. Frida is by now desperate for news of her niece's health. For the past few months, whenever Frida and her daughter Lisa try to visit Carol, Marie always seems to have an excuse. Carol has a doctor's appointment. Carol isn't feeling well enough. Carol needs her rest. It's almost like Marie is trying to keep the family away from Carol, and Frida's begun to wonder why. When Eve tells her about the shots, she immediately remembers her visit the week before Frank died, that big red welt on Frank's inner elbow, and the talk of Marie giving Frank shots at home. Frida bites the bullet and calls Mike. There seems to have been no love lost between Mike and his aunt, the meanest little boy I've known in my whole life. But this time, Mike doesn't simply disregard Frida as a paranoid busybody like he otherwise may have been wont to do. His conversation with his grandmother had given Mike a lot to think about, too. So Mike calls Carol, who, after a few weak denials finally admits that Marie's given her a total of three shots since she's been ill, the one at home while Eve was visiting and two more while she's been at Carraway. Mike then immediately calls Dr. Elmore, Carol's current physician. Dr. Elmore is frustrated. Carol's nervous system is deteriorating rapidly. Her legs below the knee are effectively non-functional, and her hands aren't working much better. He still can't pinpoint a cause— but he's noticed that Carol tends to improve, physically and mentally, when Marie isn't around. After speaking with Mike, Dr. Elmore calls Marie and politely insists that she not visit Carol for the time being, just until they can get a better handle on what's been going on. Marie is incensed. She claims she's due in the hospital herself in a few days to have a lump in her breast removed, and she must visit her daughter before her surgery. Elmore's surprised that Marie's never mentioned this until now, and he stands firm. On the door to Carol's room, nurses post a sign. No visitors. Later that day, Marie charges into Elmore's office, in the highest of dudgeons, crying that no one at Carraway cares about her daughter. Carol's fallen twice while at Carraway. After her most recent tumble... She injured her foot and was stranded on the floor for several minutes before nurses discovered her. Dr. Elmore still won't budge about allowing Marie to visit, but at one point during their meeting, Marie calms down enough to ask what he thinks could be the matter with Carol. Dr. Elmore mentions, among other things, the possibility of heavy metals poisoning. That very evening, September 18, 1979, Marie checks Carol out of Carraway. Carol's excited to go home after weeks of isolation in a locked ward, with practically no one to talk to except the doctors and nurses, and, of course, her mother. But the taxi waiting when Marie carries her daughter out of the hospital doesn't take them home. After stopping for pizza, Carol's favorite, they drive instead to a Holiday Inn near the Birmingham airport. They were only staying there for the night, of course. marie bought a new car, and the seller would drop it off at the hotel first thing tomorrow morning. Then they would drive back home to Anniston. Carol was by now well aware of her mother's perilous financial condition. Marie'd been reduced to renting a room at the airport Holiday Inn. Judging from the piles of her mother's clothes already strewn about the room, they weren't just staying there for the night. Her mother couldn't possibly afford a new car. But Carol went to bed that night choosing to believe that the next day she would finally get to see her family and friends again. The next morning, Marie forgets all about that new car. Instead, she tells Carol she's taking her to yet another hospital. Carol explodes. You told me we were going home. You promised me. Marie smacks her daughter hard across the mouth and sends the fragile young woman reeling. Carol is stunned. She's used to Marie's cold rages. She'd often taken pleasure in her ability to provoke them. But she'd never known her mother to be physically violent. On the morning's taxi ride to the University of Alabama Hospital, neither mother nor daughter say a word. The next day, on Wednesday, September 19th, 1979, as Carol's being examined by her latest set of flummoxed doctors, Marie's arrested in the University of Alabama Hospital waiting room on two check charges. One for issuing a worthless check to Moss Furniture for all the brand-new furniture she'd bought to fill Carol's new apartment, and the other for obtaining money under false pretenses from Commercial National Bank. She's handcuffed and fingerprinted and booked in the Anniston City Jail, insisting all the while that there must be some misunderstanding, that they've made a terrible mistake. Marie's arrest is the perfect opportunity for Frida to step in and inform Dr. Brian Thompson, Carol's new physician at U of A, about the shots. Dr. Thompson initially isn't receptive to Frida's story, telling her, it sounds like something you'd see on a soap opera. But the more Frida talks, the more Dr. Thompson thinks about it, and, considering what he's learned thus far of Carol's condition, heavy metals poisoning, specifically arsenic, kind of makes perfect sense. Let's take a moment to talk a little bit about arsenic, shall we? Arsenic is a naturally occurring chemical element, a metalloid, which is usually collected as a byproduct when mining other minerals, in the form of arsenic trioxide, a.k.a. white arsenic, for various industrial and commercial uses, including pest control. Up until late in the last century, arsenic was the major toxic ingredient in rat poison sold at grocery stores and pharmacies everywhere. It is colorless, odorless, and tasteless. In humans, acute arsenic poisoning initially results in severe gastrointestinal distress, vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea. At larger doses, it can lead to peripheral neuropathy, which is weakness, numbness, and or pain in the extremities, as well as confusion, disorientation, coma, and death. Chronic arsenic exposure at somewhat lower levels will have a cumulative effect over time, eventually presenting with an increase in specifically neurological symptoms, and long-term chronic exposure can lead to a variety of life-threatening issues, including the development of various forms of cancer. This is why arsenic poisoning can be so difficult to detect. At first, the symptoms are obvious, but are also a feature of other, more common causes, food poisoning, the flu, a bacterial infection, viral hepatitis, and from there can lead to any number of different health effects disastrous in their own right, further masking the original cause. There is one clue, however, one specific physical manifestation of chronic arsenic poisoning, but you have to know what to look for. Although Frida's suspicions still seem far-fetched, that same evening... Just as Carol is getting ready for bed in the ninth hospital she's been admitted to that summer, Dr. Thompson stops by Carol's room and asks her to show him her hands and then her feet. Across every nail, he sees a white line. Over time, arsenic not excreted by the body forms deposits in the bones, hair, and nails. These deposits are most evident in the nails, where they form visible white bands across the nail plates which first appear about three to six weeks after exposure. They're called Mies lines, named after a Dutch physician who first described them in 1919. Carol has Mies lines across every nail. Dr. Thompson immediately orders hair and urine sample testing, and just two days after Marie's arrest, he discovers that Carol's body is loaded with arsenic. Hey, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Once again, a list of sources and musical credits updated for episode two are available via the link in the show notes. Just an update about future episodes. I know I said in the first episode that they would come out on the third Wednesday of every month, and frankly, I must have been absolutely out of my mind. There's no way I can release under that timeline. It's totally unfeasible. This is a solo project. I do everything myself, I write it, I record it, I edit it, I score it, and I'm still learning all that, and it's a lot. I love doing it, I love telling this story, but I'm going to have to adjust my timeline more than a little bit to make room for some new opportunities in my life. I'm now planning to release the third episode on Halloween, and the fourth, hopefully, crossing my fingers, before the end of the year. So subscribe, and when the episodes are ready, they'll be there, just waiting for you like a... Lovely holiday gift from me to you. In the meantime, if you have anything at all you'd like to say to me about the podcast, email me at niceladypodgmail.com. At I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again, everybody. Bye until Halloween.